Right, turn with me again, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. I racked my brain as to how I could fit all this into one message and came to the conclusion that I could not. So we'll look at the first two verses this morning. Um, what a chapter. In our study in the book of Revelation, this is where things get, from an interpretive perspective, quite crazy. As we launch into this, this chapter, um, I want to remind you that the opening of the seven seals, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was what we called an interlude. And this interlude that we looked at several weeks back is a break between the pictures of judgment. And as the sixth seal ended, it, it ended with the question, who can stand? And the answer to that question as we go into Revelation chapter 7 is those who are sealed by the Spirit of God can stand. This was pictured in the typological number of the 144,000, the elect, the servants of God, the 7,000, as we looked at this morning. And remember that this scene was given as a source of encouragement to the church who was embattled. So we've since moved from the seals to trumpets, and in our study of the trumpets, we find ourselves again in this scene of an interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. We have the three woes that we're looking at. And as the sixth trumpet is pictured, we've looked at the first scene, which is between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and that was last week, the mighty angel and the little scroll in Revelation 10. Now we connect to another scene, which is the two witnesses that we find in Revelation chapter 11. We're quick to try and change gears from, from one scene to another. And the, the temptation is with apocalyptic interpretation is these are completely different pictures, have nothing to do with each other. But I want to show you this morning that this is a continuation of the same thought. So I've said repeatedly, we're at the wedding. We all have cameras. We're taking pictures of the same event from different perspectives and different angles, and this is no different. So let's jump into our text this morning. In verse 1, we find this, And I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. There's a word that starts off chapter 1, and it's the word then. And in the Greek, and it's a significant word because for, for those of us that are up on our English grammar, it is a conjunction. Anybody know what a conjunction does? It connects two clauses. It connects two clauses or thoughts. So what is scripture telling us when it begins with the statement, then? It's saying, as we consider what's in front of us, don't forget what's behind us. Because in the previous picture that we looked at in Revelation chapter 10, those thoughts connect with our understanding of what we'll read in Revelation chapter 11. The last thing we studied was the bittersweet word of God that John was given to eat. And he was told, John, you're going to go prophesy more. You have more work to do. 
But here he's told to rise and measure what he sees. And he's told to measure three things. He's told, number one, measure the temple of God. He's told to measure the altar. And he's told to measure or to measure those who worship there. And this is hearkening back to, and again, we see this repeated in the book of Revelation, back to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, there is a lengthy vision given to Ezekiel where he is told to rise and measure the temple. We're not going to read all eight chapters because we don't have time in our, in our brief time this morning. But I want, to, I want to look at the first four verses of Ezekiel 40. So turn there. The first thing John is told to measure, go get your, go get your tape measure, John, and measure the temple. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. He was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears. And set your heart upon all that I will show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So chapter 40 begins this lengthy description of of the angel moving from space to space, room to room, measuring in great detail the temple. And then to summarize it in in chapter 48 and verse 35, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And listen to this. The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. So the question that comes to mind is what is this place? The Lord is there that both Ezekiel and John measure. Now, there's lots and lots of debate about what this is. And the more you read, the more likely you can get confused. I want to remind us that the best way to interpret Scripture is what? Yes. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 11, we are told that he is to measure the temple. And in verse 2, it talks about the holy city. So what is he talking about here? Revelation 21, verse 9. We have a long ways to go before we get to chapter 21, so you probably won't remember this. But look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So what do you expect at that point when you hear that? 
well, yes, but when you, you're picturing this bride adorned. She's at, you know, when we stand up on both sides of the aisles and we turn around and there's the bride about to walk down an aisle. That's the picture here that's given, right? The crowd turns to see the bride fully adorned as she's about to, to walk down in marriage to the groom. And in verse 10, it says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Does this sound familiar? We just read this in Ezekiel and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to the description here. Having the glory of God, it's radiant like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And it had a a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Tuck that away for later. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And as you continue reading the description, it is describing the city not in its flaws because there are no flaws. What you're reading in Revelation 21 is a description of perfection. This is a picture of the glorified bride who is the church. Look at verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I want you to think about that description versus what we just read. It's describing the same holy city, but in different places, if you will. One is the glorified city, the completed city. This is a picture, by the way, of the completed bride of Christ. God is working, sanctifying his people to get her to this state, a state of perfection. In this life, is the church perfect? Far from it. I mean, we turn around and we look and, and man, the criticisms are heavy against the church. Church is full of hypocrites, people would say. My dad used to say, what better place for them? Mm-hmm. It's often that it is the church itself that lends itself to the excuses for those who will not darken its doors. Excuses though they might be. But I want you to think about this. When you look at this chapter, Revelation 11, as I said, I did a bunch of reading. And as I studied to bring all of that work that I put into that time to you, I, I looked at several things. And one of the common interpretations of this passage is that this is a physical restoration of the temple. The problem with that is we're going from a symbolic, parabolic, apocalyptic scene to literalism. And we flip-flop back and forth. And and what I've found is that the safest, the truest, the most accurate way 
to interpret parabolic language that we're finding in Revelation is to compare it to other scripture. So what does the scripture tell us? Excuse me. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Say, Danny, you might be making a leap to say that this is the bride of Christ, the church. Well, then I read 1 Corinthians 3, 16, when Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, this is Paul writing to a highly immature church to to be kind. And then he says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is Paul telling the Corinthian church? Church, do you not realize that you are the physical embodiment of the Spirit of God indwelling a people in this world right now? We look at Revelation 21 and we say, well, that's future. Does that mean that God is not dwelling in his people now? What does Paul say? And and it's actually very practical application. Don't be sexually immoral. Why? Because the spirit of God dwells in you. And when you enter into sin, you're dragging the Holy Spirit into that sin with you. How dishonoring to God is that? But you're bought with a price so glorify God in your body. My body does not belong to me. Because it's been purchased. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself, create in himself one new man in place of the two. By the way, in the Revelation 21 picture of the church, there is no argument over race. There is no argument over ethnicity or cultural background. That's all done away with. When we talk about the church and her perfection. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no more hostility, by the way, than Jew and Gentile. Traditionally, as we think about cultures, Isaac and Ishmael in verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And listen to what Paul tells the Ephesian church regarding being a member of the household of God, which is built on the foundations or the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? Holy temple in the Lord. Listen to this. In him you are also being built together into what? 
a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, is this a physical city that we're talking about here? We understand that this is parabolic or allegorical, but it's no less true. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 We've seen this promise already. Jesus is promising Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my word about patience, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour, hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Listen to this. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is he talking about making the the saints in Philadelphia a physical pillar in the temple? Is that what he's talking about? What is the picture there? The picture is he's making them a permanent fixture in the dwelling place of God. They do not have to worry about being put out. So we'll look at it this morning. And then Revelation 7, 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So in Revelation 11, we have a picture of the temple here. Revelation 21 tells us what? Where will the temple be in Revelation 21? There is no temple. The city is the dwelling place of God, and the gates will be left open. So John is told to measure the temple. Then he's told to measure the altar. What have we learned about the altar? The altar has played a prominent place in our study in the book of Revelation so far. There's two prominent passages that we've looked at. Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Revelation 8, 13, we find the angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Both passages that we've looked at regarding the altar are directly connected to the suffering of the saints. They're both connected. We talked about this in Bible study this morning. We are, we we bristle when we think about pain and suffering. And I was thinking about that as we were talking about this morning. Um, 2016, the Lord took mom to be with him. And it was not without suffering. She died of cancer. And and it was um, sort of like we talked about where people would come and visit her. And we certainly did everything we could to minimize her pain. But the pain was overwhelming for her. And as people would come and visit her, they saw the grace of God sustaining her, even up till the day, that moment that the Lord took her to be with him. And I was absolutely reminded of the fact that not one second of her pain and her suffering was wasted. It absolutely had purpose for what God intended for it. 
And yes, we want to minimize that. We want to, we want to, we, we do that with our kids, don't we? And, and we spoil them. We want to protect them from any pain, any hardship, any suffering. That's not God's way. It is not his way. And, and the church in the United States, our culture is so conditioned to lazy boy Christianity where we are not to be impacted by that which inconveniences us, that which causes us any kind of discomfort or pain or suffering. And we've developed this whole eschatological perspective to spare us from that. All due respect to um, that viewpoint. But I believe it's wrong. And I believe the scripture shows us why it's wrong. Because God is getting the church from Revelation 11 to Revelation 21. It doesn't look the same. In Revelation 11, we find the church is trodden down. It's overrun. In Revelation 21, we find the gates open and there's nothing in it that can contaminate it. And what is happening between there and there? It is God sanctifying his church. And what does he use to do it? Our ease, our comfort? No. So here the picture is the altar, the suffering, and the praying saints. And then he says, measure those who worship there before the throne. Revelation 7 gives us a picture of that, the 144,000. And in verse 15, it says, therefore, there before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Why did God want John to communicate to the church that they were numbered, were being measured? Remember, we're in this interlude scene between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And it mirrors what we looked at between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Remember, for he that reads and understands the book of Revelation is a blessing. This is God encouraging the saints. So what is encouraging about John taking a tape measure, measuring the temple, the altar, and those that worship there? Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6, verse 35. By the way, I have never in my years in construction taken out a tape measure without a purpose for it. This is a picture to show us that there's a purpose measuring the curtains, if you will, because there's an end goal with what is about to happen. In John chapter six and verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, what, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will, what, never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen to this. What is the will of him who sent Jesus? Jesus declares it very clearly here. Jesus is given a mission. Yes. And he is 
to lose nothing. Look at that. Verse verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you realize something? If the Lord Jesus loses one of the sheep, one, he's failed. One. That means he did not or could not obey the will of the Father. We talked about obedience this morning. Jesus was absolutely obedient to the will of the Father. He was perfectly obedient. If he wasn't, his righteousness imputed to us would not be righteousness, would it? If he had disobeyed and said, I'll do my will instead of yours, there would be no righteousness to impute to us. But he says, the will of the Father is this, that I lose nothing of what he has given to me. Well, how did he know what was given to him? He measured it. He numbered them. I have 7,000 set aside who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He lost not one of them. Unlike the picture in Revelation 21 of the perfected bride, Revelation 11 shows a mixture between the inner and outer courts. You see a picture here of, of the court outside and then the inner sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. I, I wanted to give this visual to you so you could, as we're talking about this, see what is being pictured here for us. Matthew chapter 13. And there are a couple of views of this, by the way. There are some that, that say this is the entire church. And the picture here is of those particular saints that are going through tribulation. And then these won't. But that doesn't really fit. And we'll see why in just a second. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus puts a parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So a little bit further down in verse 36, the disciples always wanting and keen to get this interpretation from the Lord. After he left the crowds and went into the house in verse 36, the disciples came to him saying, explain the parable of the weeds of the field. And the Lord graciously did. He said, the one who sows the good seed is a son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom 
all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Revelation 11 is a picture of the church in the world. And what is Matthew, the Lord Jesus, describing for us in Matthew chapter 13? There's wheat mingled with the tares, isn't there? Revelation 21 is the unmixed church, the pure church. All impurity has been removed. In Revelation 11, we see the embattled church, the church that is at war, the church that is being, by description of Scripture, being overrun to some degree. We see this with false doctrine and false teaching. We've already seen it. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16. But I have a few things against you. You You have some there that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We looked at as we went through the letters to the seven churches, how one of the great challenges that Satan does or attacks the church in in two primary ways. He He uses seduction or destruction. And the ways that he seduces the church is through what? False doctrine, compromise. Jesus takes issue with his church and says, you are compromising, you're giving space to those who would teach you that it is okay to worship idols, it is okay to practice sexual immorality. After all, that word wasn't in the original Greek, as I hear all the time. The Bible's been changed. Revelation 2.20 It says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jezebel comes back in our next chapter in our study in 1 Kings. She tries to steal for Ahab a um, vineyard. But it says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So between Balak, Balaam, the Nicolaitans, and Jezebel, it's all the same picture. The picture is compromise. The picture is idolatry. The picture is immorality. And it's ultimately designed to weaken the church. Satan uses seduction, but he also uses destruction. All right, so... We have a picture here in Revelation 11 of the embattled church. I want you to see a couple of things. He says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. All right, so a couple of things. There is the mention of the 42 months here. In verse 2, it says, 
leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So they are, they're told, he's told to leave this out and don't measure it. Scripture and the Lord Jesus is telling the church and John to, um, to not measure it because it will be trampled on. Does the Lord Jesus give us warning of what's to come? We'd be lying if we told a new convert that come to the Lord, everything's going to be rosy and sweet and life as a Christian is easy. In fact, it may even be profitable for you. It's not what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that there is a trampling coming. And we looked at this last week in Revelation chapter 10 with the mighty angel. The angel stands and raises his right hand and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. The picture there takes us back to Daniel and that passage we looked at in Exodus, where both Moses and Daniel prophesy the fact that God's people will be trampled on. Now, if you want to grow a church, don't preach on the church being trampled on. Nobody wants to hear it, but here's the truth. Scripture is warning the church. At the end of chapter 10, we find that, that John is told to take and eat that scroll. There's bitter and sweet there. It's, it's sweet in his mouth, the word of God, but there's bitter with it. And what makes it bitter? John is told and he's shown that there is suffering coming to the church. The church, the bride is embattled, persecuted on this side of glory, but glory awaits. Jesse, we go to the next slide. I'm going to look at our applications this morning. We get ready to come to the Lord's table. The church is embattled. It will be persecuted. The scripture says all those who will live godly in this life, what? Will suffer persecution. It's not an if. That's why I believe that the... The picture of the temple there that is being measured is is a picture of um, of the church being overrun. And it says that they're to be trampled on. But I want you to notice that the church, the bride is measured and numbered. And it's to remind us of this, that they are to be valued. They are valued. They're eternally safe and they're sealed and indwelt by God in the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. The Ark of the Covenant is the same picture that we see in Revelation chapter 7, where it says we're sealed, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's the same picture, just another shot of it. As as the church is warned and prepared for persecution, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We may take on serious persecution, physical harm, and we've seen that historically in the church. But what what cannot happen? Can you go back one slide, Jesse? They can't get here. They can't get there. And that's what this picture is showing us. The persecution of the church can't touch the indwelling Holy Spirit. You can't lose that. You can't lose him. The church, the bride, is measured, numbered to remind us that we are valued. How valued are we? How valuable is the church? Jesus said, the hairs of your head are numbered. We're bought with the blood of Christ. How much more valuable could we be? There is, there is nothing more precious than the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he spilled it for us. We look at the numbering, the measuring of the church. It's to remind us that we're valued, that we are eternally secure, that we are sealed and indwelt by the presence of God. Untouchable. Untouchable. And the result of that is that we should not be afraid. How many of you fear or worry or anxious? It's common for us, isn't it? Mark, as he was going through our study this morning, kept saying, this is bad theology. Is being afraid good theology or bad theology? Are you not much more valuable than the birds of the air? And not one of them falls without the Heavenly Father allowing it? The promise of God is that tribulation or trampling of the church will be short. We take comfort in that. And we'll get into next time when we look at the two witnesses, the the importance of the 42 months. It's mentioned in scripture as a time and times and half a time. It's also mentioned just a little bit further. If you look at um, um, verse four, or excuse me, verse three. After the the holy city is trampled for 42 months, he says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. 42 months and 1260 days, same time. That's what, that's what this does. But, um, one of the things that I wanted to point out to you this morning is that there are certain dates that we mention that remind us of something. If I say 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Everybody know what I'm talking about? If I say July 4th, 1776, does everybody know what we're talking about? Well, for the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, in the early church would have been very well aware of this. Antioch Epiphanes, the desolation, if you will, he was a Hellenistic Greek um, Syrian king, and he was waging war with Egypt and Israel's right in the middle between Syria and Egypt. And the Maccabean Revolution, by the way, in, in, some, um, in some military training, this is some of the first recorded guerrilla warfare that we know about. Because Judas Maccabeus, 
I think I've got his last name right. It's almost as bad as Layu. But he he takes on um, Antiochus Epiphany. By the way, his name interpreted means God incarnate. Mm. That's what he thought of himself. And he set up a temple or uh, a, a statue of Zeus inside the temple. And what did he do? Sacrifice pigs on it. And completely desecrates the temple. And then we find that that Judas leads this revolution. By the way, anybody know what Hanukkah is a celebration of? Celebration of lights. That's that's what they're celebrating. The the successful rededication of the temple. And guess what it took? Historians say three and a half years. So when when you hear three and a half years being talked about to the church in the first century, it would have resonated with them. It would have had cultural relevance to them. But here's the important part of that. If seven years is a picture of completion, what is three and a half? It's it's a condensed, shortened picture. And that's the important takeaway. We, we try to finagle, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Forcing dates to fit and all that. The other, the point is, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, the tribulation will be so great, except for the elect's sake, what? Those days will be shortened. They'll be condensed. So the encouragement for us is, yes, tribulation is real. Yes, persecution is real. Pain has a purpose in God's economy. And the trampling of the church will be short. And then we're commanded in Matthew chapter 10, not to fear. In the context of persecution, Jesus says, the hairs on your head are numbered. And then he tells his disciples, fear not. Fear not those that can kill the body, but fear those that can kill what? Body and soul. What is he saying? Don't be afraid of men. Mm -hmm. Be afraid of God, because I am telling you, I have the power that you should be concerned about, not men. They may take our lives. They may torture us. They may imprison us. And Jesus told his disciples, you'll be delivered up in the synagogues. Don't worry about what you're going to say, because when you're brought before them, it is not you who speak, but what? Holy Spirit. The Father is speaking through you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, no matter what happens to you physically, what can they not take from you, believer, child of God? They can't take the Holy Spirit from you. The indwelling presence of God cannot be infringed. They can trample the outer court, but they can't get to the Holy of Holies. That's the picture here. And and John is reminded that there will be suffering. There will be periods of, of tribulation that the church will experience. And then as we gather, um, let's see, three weeks from now, we'll look at the two witnesses. But I just want to encourage you with that this morning and be reminded of the fact that um, Christianity hurts. Following Christ will hurt. Is the servant greater than his Lord? No. The picture here that is being painted is that God in his grace and his providential design is taking his saints on the same steps the Savior walked. And guess what else? We will share in the same glory because we will be made perfect 
We will be made complete. Revelation 21 is a picture of that. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at the fact that you have chosen to indwell a people. That you would put your glory, your treasure in jars of clay like us. Lord, we are amazed at that. We ask that you would do what only you can do, which is to sanctify your people, your bride, that you would make us more like yourself. I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God would lead and direct us. Father, for those who do not have the Spirit of God indwelling them, who have never been born again in the Spirit of God, I pray that you would strip away their self-sufficiency, Father, their rebellion, their idolatry, and that you would grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, that your word would not return void. We ask, Father, that you would save sinners according to your purpose, according to your will. We ask that you would bless our time together as we share lunch and as we have our men's Bible study, that you would be pleased and glorified in what we do and say. We ask these things in your name. Amen.